This podcast represents the opinions of Stephen Scott and his guests. Views expressed in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent that of their places of work. Thank you. Hello. Have you ever had any interest in the behind the scenes on a film? Have you ever wondered how to be one of those artists? Join me, and together we look into the wonderful paths people take to be working artists. How did you get here? I'm your host, Stephen Scott. Uh, Welcome back. This is the part two of (laughs) an absolutely amazing conversation with Doug. I can't stop talking. I love it. Like I said, I guess part three will be uh, Doug's wife about his two years off. <laughs> so uh, she'll need an hour. Yeah, going going into this, uh, you were at George Lucas's uh, animation company, and it had just sold to Disney. Yep. And now here you are, um, I guess, finishing Strange Magic. Yep. Okay. So that's when everything took a really interesting turn. So. I'd finished with Strange Magic, it was all cool. I was thinking about what my next gig would be. And an old friend of mine called me up. And this is somebody I knew from college. And he and I had both been competitive fencers in college. Mm-hmm. So he had trained at, San Jose, at UC Santa Cruz and I trained at San Jose State. And uh, he um, had gotten a, a terrible run of cancer, got mm. this huge bout of cancer. And he was telling himself during his recovery, his attempt to recover, you know, in in the worst of times, he was telling himself, okay, I'm going to get through this, and I'm either going to start an organic farm or I'm going to open a fencing club. Those were the two things that I've always wanted to do. And he'd been working at big finance. He was making money hand over fist, working in the Far East, doing financial stuff, and just very smart guy, very successful. But he's fighting with his cancer. He's like, how am I going to get myself mentally through this? And so he had made those two promises to himself. I'm going to do one of these two things. Mm -hmm. I'm going to... I'm going to make a change. And so he gets better. And he's like, I don't know which end of the seed to put in the ground mm-hmm. to start an organic farm. So I better open a fencing club. <laughs> so he bought a building in Berkeley and rehabbed it. And he calls me up one day out of the blue. I hadn't talked to him in years. I didn't know about the whole cancer thing at all. Um, wow. Those last time I had seen him, I had seen him at a fencing club that we both showed up at it the same day. And we'd like fenced and like, see you later. And I didn't <laughs> see him again for another four or five years. Who won? Uh, <laughs> I had him down four to nothing. And he beat me five to four. And a friend of mine was like on the sidelines like, why'd you let him off the hook, man? <laughs> but he and I had always been like button heads. Yeah. Um, he was a great guy. But he, he calls me up one day out of the blue and says, hey, you know what? I'm going to open a fencing club in Berkeley and I really want you to see it. Okay. Come on down. I'll buy you lunch. So I was like, I just finished work at Lucasfilm and I had free time. I was like, sure, I'll go see you. So we go in and we see this building. It's a beautiful building. It wasn't wasn't huge. It was not ever going to be a huge club, but there was lots of space and it was beautifully done. I don't know how much he had spent on it, but he'd spent a bundle on rehabbing this building into this club. And I was his first member. So I was like, this is cool. I want a fence here. So on the first night that we actually got people in there to fence with us, uh, he got a phone call that his fencing master from college, who he had remained friends with, this, his, his college fencing master had retired to Southern Oregon, out in the woods, 
and he had bought property right next door and built a house, they remained friends for 30 years. So the first night we had fencing in the club, he gets a phone call that he had just passed away. He had seen him like a couple weeks prior, so he knew he was he was headed that direction, but he got that call that night that he had passed away. Uh -huh. So he set up a memorial service up in the woods in Southern Oregon at that guy's property. And I went to that because I had known his coach as well. He was he had taught me a lot. And he, he was the coach of my first fencing coach. So he was all part of my fencing family. Um, and I go up there, and I'd been to his property before, but I'd never really seen all of his stuff because he'd collected 50, 60 years worth of fencing memorabilia. Wow. And so my friend Mark had inherited all this stuff. He was the, he was the inheritor of the estate because the guy didn't have any children. That's incredible. And so he's like, what am I going to do with all this stuff? I mean, it's, it, it's, it has to be preserved. It has to be saved. But how the heck do I do it? And I was like, you know, I'm not working right now. Yeah. I'll, I, I want to do something with this. I want to preserve it. I want to create something with it. So let's create an archive for the sport and use this as the first collection and see what happens. He's like, if you'll do all the work, I'll pay you to do that work. I yeah. want to see that happen. And so we, we struck a deal. And so he started paying me a salary and I started figuring out how to create a sports archive. And I did that for nine years. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, it was... It was really interesting because once fencers that he and I both knew found out what we were doing, I started getting phone calls and emails like, hey, I got this pile of stuff and I'm either going to throw it out or ship it to you. Yeah. Or you can come pick it up. I was like, well, you can't throw it out. Yeah. So let's figure it out. Where is this? It's in Berkeley at his club. Okay. And uh, so I, I, since we got started, I've had over 100 collections come my way from different people that just had stuff that they needed to get. I've had digital collections come to me from overseas. I've got stuff from Germany. I've got stuff from Hungary. Um, I wrote six little self-published books about different subjects about the sport, mostly personalities, people that were important in sport in the, in the West Coast. Wow. Um, and I made two documentary feature films about the sport. So... I had been doing all this research about um, some Hungarian, a Hungarian coach who was very influential worldwide that ended up um, defecting at the 1956 Olympics and settling in San Francisco in 1957. And he died just a few years later. He died in 1960 of cancer. Um, but he taught my friend Mark's fencing coach how to teach fencing uh, in the Hungarian style. And the Hungarians were the best in the world at saber fencing at the time. They were, they, for 50 years, they won every gold medal that you could possibly win. Wow. And uh, so this guy had influenced, you know, long beyond his lifespan, uh, fencing in the Bay Area. So I was collecting all this information about the Hungarians and discovering all this stuff about how many gold medals they'd won at the Olympics and world championships. And I had all these books out, out on, a, on, on a counter and you know, like I had a stack of like five notebooks full of photographs. And Mark just starts flipping through them. Is like, if you want to make a movie about this, I'd pay for it. Yeah. So, like about a year later, I finally sat down with him and said, "Here's a budget. I think I can make this film." So he he approved the budget, and I got a friend of mine who was a, a shooter editor. Um, he had all his own equipment, so we were basically a two man crew, and we went all over the United States, and we went to Budapest, Hungary, and all over, a couple of places in Hungary where I got oh, terrible food poisoning. It was out of action for a couple of days, unfortunately. Um, but we, we interviewed about 20 people for that film, came back and put it together, and 
we made a feature film. Yeah. And we came in $100,000 under budget. Even better. Yeah. And so I went back to, to Mark and said, and he'd already paid us the money that we needed. We had a $300,000 budget. He'd already paid us. And I was like, we got $100,000 left. And it can either cut you a check or we can make a second film. And he's like, make a second film. So we made another film about my college fencing master who had been uh, a, a collegiate champion, uh, a, an Olympian as a young man, um, became a hippie and lived in Golden Gate Park during the Summer of Love in 1967 and got kicked off the Olympic team in 1968, which he should have been on, but he wouldn't cut his hair. Yeah. So they didn't, wouldn't let him on the team. <laughs> um, what a way. And so he was like, okay, screw you guys. And he, yeah. he literally lived in Golden Gate Park for a year um, and then uh, became a fencing teacher in San Francisco and became one of the Olympic coaches in 1976. So he had this crazy trajectory. So when I knew him, he was teaching at San Jose State University. Still didn't cut his hair. Didn't cut his hair. <laughs> um, and he ran this elite fencing program at San Jose State. And five Olympians came out of that program. Um, it was a phenomenal program. Lots of collegiate champions. He just attracted people from all over the country that wanted to fence with him. And I was going to school not far away at a community college in Santa Cruz area. And that place was like Mecca to me. It was like, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go there. and sense for him. So you make this uh, second documentary. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, what are both of them called? The first one was called The Last Captain. Okay. And it's about a Hungarian by the name of George Pillar. Okay. And the second one is called uh, Stro, the Michael DeSaro story, because fencing masters are called maestro. Like you would, um, in, in music, you'd call the leader of the orchestra the maestro. Fencing is the same thing. Maestro, but... Michael was so casual and such a hippie, they shortened it to Stro. So he was Stro. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that, that's the second one. So the first one's out on YouTube. The second one's on uh, Amazon Prime. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. So the second one got a ton of attention. The first one, unfortunately, didn't get a lot of attention. We did get it out to some festivals, uh, but we didn't have much luck. Huh. Uh, the second one, we got into 17 festivals. We got three best of documentaries best of show documentary uh, category things. Uh, we made the finals of three or four other festivals for documentary, so. Yeah. But it was all during COVID. So we didn't get to go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our film was playing all over the world at these different festivals. We you'd, were sitting at home. You'd get an email and you'd be like, oh, yeah. good for yeah. me. Congratulations, yeah. here's a little icon of a gold leaf that we might have given you in person if you had only been here, but yeah. nobody was here, so. Wow. <laughs> Um, okay, so you finish these films, you're winning a lot of awards. Mm -hmm. It's 2020, it sounds like. Yeah, um, it was, yeah, it was 2020, 2021. Yeah. Um, in, in the meantime, so my wife worked at Google for 18 years. Mm -hmm. And then she went to work for an internet startup with some Google people, Google friends of hers that got started. So, um, but also, again, during COVID, she's working from home. Yeah. And uh, we were trying to figure out, we live in the Bay Area, in Redwood City. We had a great house, and we really liked it there. A lot of our families in that area. But we didn't figure we could retire in the Bay Area. We just didn't think it would work out logistically or financially yeah. to retire there. So um, we started looking around for where we could move to to eventually retire. And she had gone to Reed College here in Portland. My first fencing coach uh, had opened up a club here in Portland in the 90s, and so I come up and visit him all the time, so I had a fair idea about Portland as well. Yeah. And 
my wife was cruising around on the internet and found a house that she really liked to look at and said, hey, come take a look at this house. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. So we flew up and took a look at it and looked at some other places, but like that first one we looked at, I was like, that's the one. Yeah. So we bought a house and moved up to Portland. Okay, and you were in the Portland area? Like yeah, we live in the Northeast. Oh, nice. Right off of Fremont. Pretty. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful spot. Yeah. Really, really love it. We can, you know, walk a mile and get to a nice shopping area and restaurants and stuff like that. It's really fantastic. We're so happy there. So you came here to retire and yeah. immediately got a job. Immediately got a job. <laughs> I, I, was, I was looking at the uh, Leica job listings and... Um, there was a job on there for a puppet wrangler. Yep. And I've, I've done CG, I've done traditional animation, never done a lot of stop motion. I, did, I, I produced one like 30 second commercial that was a stop motion piece. That was my only experience with stop, stop motion professionally. Um, and I was like, puppet wrangler, huh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> and because, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I don't, I don't do this to be important yeah. or be in charge. I just, you know, I always describe my career as like, a, People talk about their career trajectory. Yeah. I have a meander. <laughs> I do not have a trajectory. I've sort of gone where my interest took me. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I've sort of been up and down on the production management ladder because I want to do something that's going to pique my interest and keep me interested. So Puppet Ring, the thing, never done it before. Um, and when, you know, I wrote them, the cover letter I wrote them was like, look, I know I've done a lot of things, but I, this is, I was really cool, and yeah. I've never done stop motion. I was out of animation for almost 10 years. I really want to do this. Yeah. So please consider me. With, with all my experience, I know it looks weird, but I really want to do this. And so I, I got an interview. Uh, the recruiter called me up, and we talked, and I explained to her, like, look, I, don't, I know I've done a lot of stuff. I really want to do something like this because I want to know where everything is. I don't want to be in a studio where I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the people that I talked to, one of the producers that I interviewed with, um, had to go to dailies. So he only had like a couple of minutes to talk to me. I was like, okay, what's the one thing you want to know about me? And he was like, okay, how come you're not applying for the production manager job? <laughs> and I was like, okay, here, look, I, I haven't worked in your, your part of the industry before. Mm -hmm. And I can't work in that without understanding it. So I want to know where everything is. This is a great entry level stuff. I don't care that it's entry level. I want to do this because I want to figure you out. Wow. And you know, I I would rather be there and have you figure out I'm not an idiot and pull you pull me into something rather than go in there at the wrong level and fail. Yeah. Um, and he's like, I get it. So they offered me a job to be a puppet wrangler. So I wrangle puppets for a year and a half here. It's really fun. That's absolutely incredible, <laughs> honestly. And yeah, just to come in and to truly understand the beast at the ground level sort of thing, you know, is yeah. incredible. It was such a great spot for me because I really wanted to learn how you shoot one of these features. You mm -hmm. know, what's, what's happening on the stages? And that was an incredible learning experience. Yeah. And because I'd been on stages for, you know, live action shoots for visual effects and things like that, but never anything like at this scale. And, and the scale here is just unbelievably big there's so much going on here but yeah. then I was also attached to the puppet department and how these puppets get constructed mm -hmm. and that was such that was exactly the mix that I wanted because um, I wanted to know how these puppets work because my I'm interested in animation that's what's going to get animated I want to know what that looks like I want to know how that works I want to know what it feels like and I want to know how it gets done on stages so I was in the perfect spot for me to just soak everything in yeah 
and then one of these days I was I was walking you know after a run of running some puppet to some stage I was walking past the production office and I ran into Ariane Sutner who was the head of production and she and I have a mutual friend because we've okay. both been in animation forever of course not surprising um, but we never really had a chance to, to chat and catch up about it because we didn't really interface all that much mm-hmm. um, but we, we both like had a minute and so we started chatting. We chatted for about 15 minutes, but about a minute into the conversation, he sort of gave me a sideways look and was like, how come you haven't applied for that production manager job? <laughs> because they were looking for a production manager to backfill um, a position that had been vacated for the puppet fabrication production manager. Mm-hmm. Like a year and a half or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was open for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, Carly, the previous manager, hired me. And hired she, me too. She was fantastic. I just, mm-hmm. I loved her. And... Uh, so I hadn't really considered moving away from being a puppet wrangler. I was like, I was perfectly happy there. Yeah. But when she asked me that, I was like, eh, stress, you know, a lot of work, I don't know. And But I kept thinking about it. So about two weeks later, I went back to her and I said, let's have a conversation about it. Yeah. Let's at least talk about it. Because I, I knew the position had been open for well over a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that started the conversation. And I talked to other people and it, everything seemed to point in the same direction. So yeah. I was like, okay, I'll be... Puppet fabrication production manager. Let's let's see how this goes. The true mark of a leader is somebody who doesn't want it, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's funny because I'm on I'm on LinkedIn with Carly, and as soon as I, I got the offer, I sent her a thing on LinkedIn. I was like, how ironic is it that when you left, I was thinking, man, I'd hate to be the person that followed her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and here I am following following her. But uh, it's been fun. It's it's it was interesting how quickly some of those muscles came back for being in production management at, at, at this level before. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've done a lot of things since the last time I had a job at this level and produced, my own, produced and directed my own features. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm definitely a different person than, than I was when I was first in this kind of a role. I mean, I'm not sure what that other person looked like, but you seem like the most calm, collected, like... Just, again, you have a bearing to you that is incredible, you know? Well, thank you. I, I don't, I've never heard it described as incredible before, Steve. Thank you. <laughs> but, that, see, it, it's interesting because I'm pretty mellow, right? Yes. I grew up in Southern California. I finished high school in Santa Cruz area, going to the beach every day. My last, my last high school class, my last semester of high school, my last class of the day was beach activities, where we just went to the beach <laughs> for the class. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty mellow yeah. and that's worked for me and it's worked against me. Mm-hmm. When I was managing editorial for Wally for those six months where I was just doing editorial, it worked against me yeah. because the editorial manager model at that studio was panic mode mm-hmm. constantly. Um, the people that I was working for that had both been in that seat were both very high nervous energy people always worried about the next thing, always thinking about stuff. I was thinking about stuff too, but I do it calmly. Yeah. And that didn't work there. And it didn't work, at least it didn't work on that show. Other people have done that job that way at that studio, but not on that show, not at that time. So being calm hasn't always served me. Yeah. So, you know, it really depends on the situation that you're in. I've been in the same uh, situation, like house fire studios where they just look at you like you're crazy because you're still smiling while the the building's on fire and you're like it's all right we can we, this will all get done i promise yeah. they're never going to just 
I mean, that's not true. I was going to say they never just can the project and you'll never see the light of day. But, oh, that did happen once. Yeah. So, you know, it does happen. <laughs> I think the first time it really paid paid off for me was I was it was when I was Rhythm and Hughes commercial producer. We were working on a, a commercial that had a crazy deadline for a crazy client. And he was in New York and we were in, in Hollywood. And at like literally like 1 a.m. between Saturday and Sunday morning, Saturday night and Sunday morning, it's like midnight, one o'clock, we're on the phone with him about a, something that we needed to discuss. And I'm surrounded by the rest of the crew. There were like eight or 10 of us in the room mm -hmm. listening to him on the speakerphone yell at me for 10 minutes. Wow. And he literally, he just went off on me and I just let him go. And at the end of it, I was like, well, sorry you feel that way here's what we're gonna do and we finish the call hang it up and the guys in the crew were like how did you do that mm -hmm. i would have been screaming back at him and you just sat there like he you know one o'clock for us it's 4 a.m for him he's in new york i've probably been mad too but he's crazy so let's just get past it and yeah. do what we know we need to do absolutely these people are like man i don't know how you did that that's awesome. I, I mean, I don't know if I would have been as calm in that situation either. After a while, you're like, okay, let's, you know, can I get to the part where I console you? And yeah. Well, <laughs> it, interestingly, this this was the director of the commercial we were animating for. Uh, his producer, I had screaming fights with on the phone for okay. for weeks while we were doing that show. Okay. Oh my god. So so it it definitely I definitely swung both ways. Yeah. In that situation, but that was. The, that was that's was such a watermark for me because it was the one it was I think the first time where I'd ever had somebody do that to me and I just I didn't give it back. Totally zoned like, out. Like, yep, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. That's not gonna happen. <laughs> Here's how it's gonna go. Mm -hmm. And we'll see you, uh, we'll talk to you on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> and you know that that person got off the phone too, by the way, and was just like just happened did yeah. i just lose that fight <laughs> you know I, who knows he was nuts but he was probably in his bedroom so his wife was probably awake at four o'clock in the morning listening, listening to her husband scream at somebody in hollywood yeah for 10 minutes oh my god i felt so sorry for, for her Ugh. well i gotta say i'm absolutely happy to have you uh here and I, as far as this interview goes uh you've been absolutely giving i guess my last question for all of this is, um, was there any resource, was there anything that you had found along the way that you wish you could just go back in time and be like, here, here you go, young Doug, you know, you're going to need this along the way. You know, I think it's something that I did unconsciously, but I always advise people when I'm talking to young people is to manage their relationships because you never know where that call is going to come back come from. You never know when somebody's going to remember you and think, I wish, you know, I think they could do this, mm -hmm. you know? And I, I think I did that fairly unconsciously because I, I try to be nice to people in general. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the ways that people can go astray is getting caught with the idea that it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. Cause it's both because you can't know people be lousy at what you do yeah. and keep your job. Not in this industry. It's a talent-driven industry. Absolutely. You can't do the work. You won't stay no matter who you know. And But but knowing people is really important. Yeah, it helps. Um, because 
you know, anything that can get you that first gig might be the thing that gets you that second gig. Those people might get you the third gig. You know, it's, it's a small community. You know, and, and working in stop motion, it's even a smaller community. You know, I've worked in CG for a long time, and there's, I know people all over the world now. Um, and now I'm in stop motion, I'm gonna get to the point of knowing people all over the world again if I stay in this business for you know, the next five years, I'm gonna know people all over the world. And you never know where that call's gonna come from that's gonna lead you on a completely unique path that you never expected. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've seen a lot of people go through that in their careers, and some of, it, some of it's gone really well, and some of it hasn't gone all that well. You know, I've, I, I know incredibly talented people that are waiting for that one opportunity to really break them. Absolutely. And not break them in a bad way, but like break them into where I yeah. can imagine them getting to. The As I like to call it, the eight mile moment, you know, that Eminem movie where he, yeah. he just he had to get up on the stage that one night when Dre was there. And, yeah. You know, the rest is history. It's, yeah, I feel that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because um, it's, it's funny because I've, I've definitely had students come up to me as like, oh, it's not really about how talented you are, right? I was yeah. like, no, it's absolutely only about how talented you are. When I, when I worked at Disney, uh, when I was in the artist development gig for those four years, um, I got to attend this really great meeting. And every week at lunchtime, uh, once a week, they would have a review board. And there was one on the traditional art side and there was one on the digital art side. And I ran the one on the digital art side, but I always attended the one on the traditional art side to just make sure that my dynamic matched kind of to theirs, even though we were looking at different reels and work. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing that fascinated me about the traditional side was it was only about the work. They would get these portfolios, they'd have them out in the hallway, the artists would go through and was like, okay, this person's applying for layouts, all the layout leads would come through and they would look through the portfolio. This person's applying for animation, all the animation supervisors would go through and flip through that portfolio. And then they would go in, we'd have lunch, and then we'd discuss. We'd go person by person by person, what do you think of this person's work? And it was astonishing because on the traditional side of the world, for those people who had been at Disney for a long, long time, they didn't even interview. They looked at the work and said, this person can do the work, I want them on my crew. That's incredible. Yeah. I was stunned that that's how they did things. Mm -hmm. Every now and then, somebody would pop up um, and somebody might say, you know, I worked with this person before. I didn't have a great experience with them. You might want to reconsider. Okay. And then it became political because it could be if those two supervisors didn't get along, it's like, oh, you didn't like them? I'll probably love them. Yeah. I'm going to get them in here tomorrow. <laughs> and you just never knew when that kind of stuff was going to start firing across the table. I love those moments. <laughs> but, but to hear those guys and women and men break down these the work of these people, because I would flip through the portfolio, I was like, all these people can draw rings around me because I can't draw at all. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at these portfolios and they're fantastic for my eye. Um, and then they would break them down and say, here's what's wrong with this portfolio. And I would go back and look at the portfolio and say, okay, let me see if I can see what they, what they were talking about. Yeah. Like, what, what's wrong with this work? What's, what do they see that makes them think this person is not ready for this level? And I, it was such a learning experience for me because I had started to see, you know, one of one of the big things that really got me for for people's life drawings was one of the one of the people that was that I was working with who was in the arts development. She was sort of the artist development side of the traditional review board, like I was on the digital review board. Um, she was a great reviewer of portfolios. She could like break down a portfolio. People would Disney artists with twenty or thirty years experience would listen to her break down a portfolio and be nodding their heads like, yeah, that's what I saw too. Mm -hmm. She was really on, in, on, into it and, and good at it. And what she taught me was for, for life drawing, 
hands and feet. Look at the hands and feet. If they're not finishing their hands and feet, it means they can't draw hands and feet. If they can't draw hands and feet, they can't work here. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. And then I started looking at you know, people that were applying there, and I started looking at comic book artist portfolios. I was like, ah, that's why they're not working at a higher level, because they can't do hands and feet. Yeah. Except for the really good ones who do really great hands and feet. <laughs> Um, but it was it was just I learned so much from just listening to people in that environment. Yeah. And then so my job on this on the CG side was to review all the reels and portfolios with the um, recruiters because the recruiters would put everything together and say here's what we're gonna look at this week and I would pick from that pile the ones that I thought the CG leads needed to see for for their review board. Yeah. And it was interesting because you know. I, was, I would get a lot of rejections because I would see something and I was like, don't know, gonna put it in. So of, you know, I, I laid it out for the, for the leads one time. It's like, look, I'm putting a lot of stuff in front of you guys that you're rejecting, but here's why I'm putting it in front of you is I think they may be somebody we'll see down the road you might see a specific thing that will be interesting you, to you, but you guys are only interviewing about 20% of the people that I'm putting in front of you. Do you want me to cut it tighter? And they were like, no. We, we like what you're doing because yeah. we feel the same way. This, we're only going to grow. These people might come back in a year with a different portfolio. We want to know who they are. So okay. keep doing it the way you're doing it. Very cool. So I was like, okay, but it gives me good direction. Yeah. I had um, a personal story. Uh, I used to work at a Halloween mask company, and I had a friend and mentor, Graham Rubin, super talented 3D uh, modeler. And I remember I finally got to get behind the computer and do some ZBrush sculpting for these masks. And one of the things that he would say to me all the time, and I say it still, it's like a mantra, is it, it cannot look like Buzz Lightyear. It had to be Buzz Lightyear. And it was one of those things that like, I really learned how to uh, copy and make exactly identical uh, imagery, especially if it was like a 2D image, you yeah. had to learn how to make it into a 3D mask. And uh, so I, you know, lending to that is I totally get it. Like, yeah. Oh, that, that, that's another thing for for any students that are listening, um, for portfolio advice. If you're applying to Disney, don't put any Disney characters in your work. Mm -hmm. If you're applying to Pixar, don't put any Pixar characters in your work because you're showing their work to the people that made it. They know exactly how it looks, mm -hmm. and if you're a fraction of a millisecond yeah. off of something, they lived it. They'll see it. Yeah. And so never, ever, ever do that. Mm -hmm. Don't put some studio, some version, you know, some fan art. If it's Mickey or Mickey, Mickey Donald Goofy, don't apply to Disney with that work. Yeah. Because uh, I'll personally, again, if, if you do, you get all these red lines all over oh your image. Of just destroy like, you. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely the most devastating type of review. And you would just be like, okay, got it. And you would have to just take that and go. Yeah. So, yeah, it was one of those things that yeah. I, I feel that completely. Yeah, don't. <laughs> even, even the artists would go through that. You know, I remember Don Hahn, who's one of the fantastic producers that worked at Disney and executive producer of a lot of things as well. Great guy, very talented, but he'd come up through the artist ranks as a cleanup artist before he went into production management. And there was a, an old timer there who was like bringing up the cleanup artists, like here's, here's how you do this. And he, he said, the guy passed away while I was there and we had a memorial service for him and Don got up to speak about him and he said, this man had a magic desk because I would put my drawings on his desk and they would all turn to shit. <laughs> oh 
<laughs> but but yeah. they, that's what they went through, mm -hmm. you know, to get to the level that they got to. And that's, it was people like that that allowed Disney to have a renaissance. Of course. In the, in the 70s and 80s. Because um, without that continuity of, of effort from those artists, they would have had to start over completely from scratch, which was the amazing thing. When I got there in, in 1985, I'm going to work for a studio that's 60 years old. Yeah. And, and there were people that had been there for 40 and 50 years. There are people that had been there that work with Walt, you know, that's still working there. And that gave you a real sense of continuity, but it also meant when people told you, talked to you about working the Disney way, they meant something very specific. Yeah. That wasn't some amorphous thing. It's like, this is how we do things here. Mm -hmm. And that was really interesting working on the CG side because one of the problems that the traditional side had with working in CG was the language was different and the look of it was different. So some very smart people in the... Um, production technology group sat down with the animators, CG animators and traditional animators, and said, how do, how do we want Disney 3D animators to work in CG? Wow. What, what's the language? What should it look like? How should you work? What should your flow be? Yeah. And they created a system that sat on top of Maya that was the Disney way to animate 3D. And I don't know if they still use it or not, but it was earth-shatteringly good. I mean, because you, you could train... 2D animators how to animate in 3D very, very quickly because the language is all the same. You're, you're, you're creating a key pose. Yeah. You know, they, they were doing, you know, instead of drawing it, they were grabbing a joint. It was like, okay, this is what my pose needs to look like. But they were creating a pose and they were changing the timing of that pose to this to the next pose. And it's like, mm, I need another frame in here. So they would use a slider. It's like, okay, now there's an extra frame in there. So now I'm getting the timing that I want. Wow. And it was... It was phenomenal. You know, they got to the point where when they were laying off all their traditional artists um, because they were going to all CG stuff, they were having a lot of those traditional artists that wanted to uh, do a test in 3D. And one of the people that had been one, part of their renaissance with, you know, all the people at Disney that you think of, Andreas Deja and Glenn Keane, all those, he was one of those guys. He went with Don Bluth. So he animated, he was one of the lead animators with Don Bluth for a long time, and then came back to Disney. So he wasn't, he wasn't of the body. He was phenomenally talented. Everybody knew that, and people liked him, but he hadn't stuck around. Mm -hmm. So he had a different aura about him because of that. So he says... I want to try this 3D thing. I want to do a test. I want to see if I can be one of the people that you keep on from the, from the traditional side. Yeah. He does a test. Blows people away. Learned how to do it in like two weeks. Does a test in like four weeks. <laughs> blows people away. Yeah. They didn't keep him. Wow. Yeah. What? Just politics or? Politics or ageism. One or the other. Oh. Don't really know. But it was really too bad because yeah. he was an incredible talent to just let go. And I don't, I didn't know him that well. I thought he was a great guy. Yeah. And I thought he would have been an amazing addition to that team. And other, other people from the same era, Nick Ranieri became a CG animator, incredibly talented, did great work in CG. Yeah. And this guy, I think would have done, done the same. He'd been a lead animator on, on their, their current shows in 2D. And he proved without a shadow of a doubt that he could have worked in 3D just as effectively. Wow. But they didn't keep him. I don't know why. Maybe, yeah. 
like you said, age or, you know, maybe it was a money thing or yeah. who knows, like it's, yeah, it's when they're pinching the pennies, right? Yeah. Um, what, is, what is it? Dollars t- chasing dimes, <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's, uh, I saw a lot of that when I was at Disney. It was, it was interesting. When I first got there, there were no budgets on the films. Mm-hmm. They didn't have one because they were making so much money at that time. Because I got there about just before Pocahontas got finished. And all the movies leading up to Pocahontas had done way more business than they had ever expected. Like Lion King and yeah. Aladdin and Little Mermaid. All these things were huge. Beauty and the Beast, huge, huge international hits. And... Uh, then Pocahontas and Hercules and a few others that didn't do as well. And yeah. it's like the, ma- the the magic had sort of come off. And then they started having budgets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which was really interesting because it's like, how were we getting by without having budgets? It's like, it just didn't matter what you spent because we were going to make it back to the box office. Wow. And when that was no longer true, eh, things changed. That's when it, the, the hard block started chopping. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's good for my time, if you're okay with that. Um, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. I got to say again, you, what an inspirational story. Like, I absolutely love this. It's, Thanks, Steve. Uh, incredible. So uh, if you have any questions for me or Doug, uh, you can email me at stephenofthecoast at gmail.com uh, for now. <laughs> and, uh, I, yeah, I just absolutely thank you again, Doug. Yeah, no, it was my pleasure. Really yeah, enjoyed it. That was an- Great.